Good morning, church. Praise the Lord. Good to see us back gathered here on this Lord's Day. Also want to welcome guests who are with us. Praise the Lord for you. I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And as you do that, let's go ahead and, and bow our hearts before the Lord. We will begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are before you, and we were already reminded by your Spirit who is ministering to us now, the treasure that we have in Christ, the rest that he provides for us, the security that is in, found in him and him alone. And Lord, you plead with us, and the Spirit is compelling us to look to him, to trust him, to behold Christ, and as we open up your word, this is our prayer this morning to once again look to Christ and to understand who he is and know how to properly respond in light of your revelation. So I pray that you would stir in us this longing, affections for Jesus Christ. Lord, we were just uh, singing that, that we long for no other but for you, and, and Lord, would that be true of us? I pray that you would just cut away any other affection, any other love that competes with our love for Christ and seeing him worshipped and seeing him honored and in us being pleasing, Lord, to him, I pray. Would, would that just happen this morning? Reveal yourself from Matthew chapter 8 to our longing hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're making a turn here in Matthew chapter 8, uh, and uh, we're going to be covering a rather uh, large portion of Matthew chapter 8, the first 17 verses here. As we do, I just uh, want to encourage you once again with this. As we study these chapters, our goal, as I so often remind us, that our goal is not just to simply go through the book of Matthew and just go verse by verse until we're done with our study here, looking at the gospel of the kingdom, but our, our goal is greater than that. Our goal is for Matthew, for the content of uh, Christ here and, and this revelation to find its way into our hearts. You know, sometimes Matthew moves fast, sometimes he moves slow, but regardless of the speed, Matthew has one destination, always one destination, and that is Jesus Christ, to know him and to be mature in him. Remember why Matthew is writing. Matthew is writing to Jews. He's writing to a group of people who need to be encouraged, who need to be reminded why Jesus is great. And so we have to keep his audience in place, in mind, and remind ourselves that, man, we have exactly the same need to continue to focus on Christ, to continue to know him, and to continue to grow. And I want the same thing for our church, to know, to love, to treasure Christ as we study these verses, no matter how long or short our passage is any given week. Jesus had just preached the most famous sermon in human history that is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. He has just demonstrated in word that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah who alone possesses true righteousness. And so he calls on the people at the end of chapter 7 to come and to submit to him by faith in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He is the promised Messiah. And in the end, the crowd realizes his authority as he spoke. The question is now, can he work the works of the Messiah? Not just can he speak as one who is promised, but can he perform what that Messiah was promised to perform? 
So the crowd is gathering and the suspense is great. I mean, have you ever heard of a, um, a, a really good preacher at a conference or, or maybe some kind of seminar, maybe you went to like Shepherd's Conference and you observed that as, as this preacher finished speaking, he would walk down and at the, at, the, at the end of the session, all of a sudden there are these great lines forming to go and speak to this great preacher, to go in and, and perhaps ask or to maybe learn something or maybe follow through on something that was said. There's something about hearing someone sharing something moving that makes people want to be around that speaker. Well, here in the next two chapters, Matthew sets out to reveal more of a preacher, his work. Let me tell you something else Matthew says. Here's what he said in Matthew 5 through 7, and I want you to focus now on his work, on his life. And as he focuses on these wonderful works, Matthew's goal is not to primarily emphasize these miracles, but to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who has come to bear our curse, to cleanse his people, to bring in the outsiders, and to ultimately atone for sins by dying instead of sinners. It is clear in Matthew 7:28 that Jesus possesses all authority. He possesses authority as he spoke now. Matthew demonstrates that he possesses authority as he works. And as he demonstrates his authority and willingness, not just the ability to do something, but the desire to accomplish, to restore, and to save, his primary call for people is to respond. Don't just be a bystander. Don't just observe and once again come out with this response. Wow, what a great miracle worker. No, that's not the point. The point is respond with radical submission to this Christ. Believe in this Christ. Let me show you something. If you're in Matthew 8, Matthew 8 and 9, these next two chapters that we will study here for the next couple of months, here's the, the layout, okay? So in Matthew chapter 8, he begins by highlighting three miracles, 1 through 17, which we're going to look at this morning. Okay, three miracles. And then right after these miracles, turn to Matthew 8, 18, and look what happens. Now, as soon as Matthew lays this out, three miracles, there is this radical call to discipleship. Don't just observe. Don't be a bystander. Respond. And so we see this section of verses 18 through 22. Follow me. Follow me, that's the response. Believe and trust me. Do you see the leper? Do you see the centurion? Do you see this woman? Do what they did, submit and follow me. And then there are three more miracles. In verses 28 through uh, chapter nine, verse eight, three more miracles. And then what's the call again? Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. You see what he's doing here? He wants us to respond. He, wants, he wanted them to respond to who he was, to who he is. And then once again, there are three or four, depending on how you want to cut this passage, miracles, and once again, there is a call to discipleship at the end of chapter 10. And this is what we're up against. This is what I want us to see as we continue in the next months. Don't be a mere observer. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. Matthew's goal here is to reveal Jesus. Who is this Jesus, and why should I follow and submit to him why should I respond to his words and works? The answer is you need to worship him because of who he is. I want us to read here beginning with 728 and we'll read through verse 17 of chapter 8. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. 
When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourselves to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I I say to this one, go, and he goes and, and another come and he comes and to my slave, do this, and he does. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. In these verses here, Matthew presents for us three portraits of the Messiah in answering, who is this Jesus? Number one, I want us to see this, that Jesus is a sympathetic Messiah. Jesus is a sympathetic Messiah who is willing to cleanse the outcasts. Consider Verses one through four first. Having completed the sermon, Jesus comes down from the mountain and and we are told that great crowd is following him. Crowds, in fact, plural. And if you go back to Matthew chapter five, verse one, Matthew opens up his account of the sermon, noting that Jesus was already surrounded by crowds. But as he kept preaching, Crowds continue to multiply so that now, by the time Jesus is done, there are great crowds. And Matthew wants us to see this. But I want you to notice something else, that there's probably a break in verses, between verses one and two. Enough time had passed for the crowds to probably dissipate, because beginning with verse two, Jesus is probably alone with his disciples, perhaps. How do we know this? Well, look down at verse four. When Jesus tells the leper to tell no one about his healing, it stands to reason that there was nobody around except for maybe his disciples to witness this miracle. Here's an uh, important side note as we study and as we go systematically through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew doesn't necessarily follow Christ's ministry in a chronological order like Luke does, for instance, right? He goes, he investigates, and he writes everything down as it happened. Matthew here is not concerned with chronology. He is concerned with themes, with themes. And so as he laid out in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus was going around all Galilee, he was preaching the kingdom, he was teaching, and he was performing miracles. That's the theme of Matthew. First, we have the teaching, or first, we have the preaching, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we have the teaching, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And now we have the performing of the miracles of the kingdom. His goal is not to describe 
this timeline of events, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew here composes a thematic account of Christ. And here's verse two. Look down at verse two. Matthew introduces this next section with this tiny word that's meant to arrest our attention. And those of us who, who regularly read uh, NASB, right, New American Standard versions here, we, we completely miss out actually on this, ver, uh, on this uh, term here. It's in your ESV translation, but literally verse two says, and behold, and behold, behold, pay attention reader. The, the scene now shifts from Jesus speaking to the crowds to now interacting with individuals. Behold a leper. This is strange. Jesus is heading east to Capernaum with his disciples and behold, Matthew says, a leper. And we need to remember, as with the rest of the context of Matthew, we need to constantly keep in mind what is going on. We need to keep in mind the historical setting and the context of what we're dealing with. Lepers are not allowed to be among the people, any people. They can't freely roam the streets. They can't interact with the healthy. They are the outcasts of society. If they are spotted among the people, they can get stoned. In fact, it was common practice for the religious leaders to pick up stones and just chuck at them if they feel like they've crossed the boundary. They, they're coming too close to our society. They were not welcomed. Why? Well, leprosy. Leprosy. Leprosy in Jesus' day referred to various or, or different kinds of skin diseases. Today we have Hansen's disease which um, if treated early can actually be cured in a matter of months through drug therapy. But in those days, leprosy had no cure. Lepers would experience first great pain, which would result then in, in numbness in certain parts of the body. Pink and, and red boils would, would soon appear, which would occasionally begin to burst. After a while, these boils, they would turn into sores. After some more time passes, lepers would begin to lose their fingers and their toes. They would put on their shoes. They would take out the foot and some toes would be left inside. They would emit, obviously, because of this condition, some terrible smells. These people were not received by society. They would be outcasts. They are the untouchables. To be a leper was often interpreted as someone who is cursed of God. And as I already mentioned, this disease had no curse and, and uh, supernatural healings were even rare and were considered as difficult as raising someone from the dead. Remember the account in 2 uh, Kings chapter 5, the account of Naaman, where this Assyrian right, king writes to the, to the Israeli king and he says, hey, uh, I have this guy who is leprous. Uh, why don't you take care of him? Because this slave girl is telling me that you can. And he tears his clothes and he says, am I God? Am I God to do this for you? No one can do this. Just so happened that there was a man of God who, who could, but it was very rare. But it appears now, going back to Matthew chapter one, that this man heard about Jesus. Not only that, this man here, he believes that Jesus is different, that Jesus possesses a kind of authority that no one else does. So this man completely ignores the customs. He disregards all the prescriptions and he comes to Jesus. It is not that Jesus is going out and seeking him out. He comes to Jesus. He doesn't care what others think. He doesn't care about the possibility of stoning. He concludes that there's this man and I need to get to him. And notice first, he humbly kneeled before him. He bowed down before him, demonstrating with this action that Jesus had authority. He recognized Jesus as Lord. And although many Calling someone Lord, right, to many, it may seem just like a polite or a respectful thing to do. This leper, no. It was recognition of someone great. 
Matthew uses the same word, which is often translated as worship. And, and in fact, the tense which he uses, it illustrates like this continual action. He kept bowing down. He kept prostrating himself before the Lord. He kept on worshiping. Second, notice leper's request. He says, Lord, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I mean, don't you love this? I, this man here, listen, church, does not doubt that Jesus is able to heal. No doubt he's heard of many accounts where Christ had already healed in the district. He has great faith. There is absolutely no question about Jesus' power, but only his will, only his will. He says, I know you can, but will you? I, I know you can heal me, Jesus. Would you heal me? One who is cast out, who has absolutely no hope of cleansing and restoration, will you heal? And, and the idea is like, will you heal even me? I know you healed others, but even me? Someone who is an outcast? This leper acknowledging Jesus' authority fully submits to his will. I'm all yours, and you do what you will. And you could probably hear the silence as this man wonders what, what might become of him. And Jesus' response, look at this, Jesus stretched out his hand. When everyone is plugging their noses probably because of the terrible odor this leper is emitting and perhaps stuffing their hands into their pockets for fear of getting too close to this man, Jesus stretches out his hand as if to say, come here. And touches him, touches him. He touched him. You know, according to Leviticus 3 and Levitic, or Leviticus 5 and then 13 and 14, by touching a, an unclean leper, Jesus would become ceremonially defiled himself. He too then would need to go through some elaborate procedure to cleanse himself in order to now be introduced back into the society as a quote-unquote healthy person. So it seems as though Jesus here is breaking the law. He knows the law, friends by coming to this leper's rescue. But we must remember that this account here follows what, what Matthew already told us in, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law. And, and far from becoming unclean and defiled, Jesus, by touching this man, removes the defilement and cleanses the man. Isn't that amazing? Matthew wants us to see, church, that Jesus, he wasn't grossed out by, by this man or, or his disease. No, he reaches towards this man who's in a very terrible condition. A man who, who has not experienced a human touch in quite some time is now touched by the Son of God. Listen, Jesus didn't have to touch him. In fact, he, he didn't even need to be around this guy. We'll know that in, right in the next account with Centurion. He doesn't need to be close. He doesn't need to touch anybody. But he did. Such is Jesus' love for sinners. He's a sympathetic Messiah who, who understands our struggle. He's a compassionate Savior, church. Jesus is not ashamed to touch us. He identifies with us so that he might cleanse us. Jesus is a sympathetic Messiah who is willing to cleanse the outcast, and that's us. Notice, notice Jesus' response here. He stretches out, he, he touches, and he says, I am willing. I will. Jesus is God who wills and things happen. I will. 
And what happened? And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And notice this. The text doesn't say that he was healed, that he was cured of leprosy. There's an intention here, I think, of why, why Matthew uses this, in fact, term, he was cleansed. He wasn't just healed, you know, he, he became well, like he was sick and now he is healthy. That's not the emphasis here. He was immediately prepared to worship God. According to Leviticus chapter 13, they had to wait. Lepers, after being cleansed, they had to wait seven days and inspect it every single day and then pronounced clean, cleansed, in order to then afterwards come and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Come and, and be reintroduced back into the society so that you can become a qualified worshiper. Here, however, this man is immediately made ready. So we see that even in the case of a, a physical healing, Jesus is making a deeper connection to this man's status as a worshiper. You can now worship God, not just healed, but cleansed. There was a deeper problem than just issues with his body parts. And he says this, now go and present yourself to the priest. Remember, this is happening on the way to Capernaum, and, and Capernaum is about 85 miles north of Jerusalem. 85 miles north of Jerusalem. And so somewhere there on the way to Capernaum from Galilee, Jesus says to this man here, he says, you got to go down. You got to go 85 miles or so, 85 miles to Jerusalem in order to present an offering which Moses, right, instituted according to the law. You go do that. And by the way, as you go back, be silent. Be silent. Don't tell anyone. Jesus didn't want any popularity. He doesn't want a spectacle. He doesn't want people to come and to claim them as their miracle worker or, or as an earthly king, as would eventually happen in, in John chapter six. He says, go, do what you're told and go and present yourself as a testimony to them. This is real is what he's saying, go. What just happened was anticipated by the very priests and scribes in their own writings as proof of Messiah's coming. They were waiting for one to come and to heal a leper. And boom, it happened. It happened. And Jesus says, you got to go now. And you will be a witness to me, the Messiah. I am here. Friends, who is this Jesus? Jesus wants us to see that as the sympathetic Messiah who not only can, but, but wills to cleanse the outcasts, we gotta come and respond. He personally, look at this, he personally interacts and he personally identifies with sinners. Later on in, in Matthew 9, if you're an aide, but flip just maybe a page, Matthew 9, 12, look what Jesus says. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. This is why I'm here. Not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, and that is why I came. For I did not come, verse 13, to call the righteous, but sinners. One who are unworthy, who are the outcasts. And so, this first encounter then sets the stage for the other two. This, this first miracle dealt with the outcast in society who suffered from these incredible diseases. But Jesus now takes care of all of that. But now in these next two miracles, Matthew proceeds to demonstrate that Jesus not only cured the outcasts and cared for them, he also welcomed the outsiders, the Gentiles, and those who were marginalized in their culture, namely women. I mean, this is so anti their leaders, religious leaders. That's the point. Point is for any Jew to read this, they would put the account of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, this Jesus cares for lepers. What? What about our leaders? No. Stone. 
stoning. We got to keep away. And this guy, he touches them and he restores them. He heals them. What about the next one? Well, number two, Jesus is the sovereign Messiah who is able to heal the outsiders. Not only willing to cleanse the outcast, but he's able to heal the outsiders. Now, verse five, they have entered the city. They have entered the city, and as they come in through the gates, probably a following is beginning to form again. And they've entered, it says, Capernaum. Now, a little bit about the city. If you remember going back to Matthew 4.13, Jesus settles in this city or this village after leaving Nazareth. And so he kind of builds a home. This is his hometown now. In fact, if you're in Matthew chapter 9, look at what Matthew chapter 9 says. Uh, Verse 1, getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. This own city is a reference to Capernaum. It's his own city now. At this time here, Capernaum is a center of commerce. It is a Roman tax polling station and a military outpost. And so as they walk in, a crowd begins to gather, and out of nowhere, a centurion comes to Jesus. A centurion comes to Jesus. Centurion, a a leader of the army, a leader of 100. He's a commander of the Roman army. He's not a leper. He's a commander, a, a Roman commander. And think about this. He too comes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go out searching for these guys. They come to him. And notice what this Gentile does. He, he implores, he appeals to Jesus. And again, you need to remember the present setting, historical context. J- Jews here, right? A nation that Jesus belongs to, Jews, they were being worn out by the Romans. The, the Romans here at this time, they kind of, they occupy the driver's seat, so to speak. Jews are the subjects, Romans are the masters. And look here, role reversal. Why? A Roman who is a master over a Jew comes to Jesus who is a Jew and says, he implores and he pleads. Why? Because like the leper, this man too knows something about this Jesus and there's something different about this man. Lord, I need help. More specifically, he says, my, my servant, and, and this word that's used here for a servant is like interchangeable with a son. So he says, my, my servant who's like a son to me, man, I treasure this guy. I value this man. He needs help. Literally says he's thrown down and is paralyzed. Thrown down and is being tormented. That that word tormented, fearfully tormented. He's like thrown down and he's paralyzed at home. And, And look at Jesus. I mean, this is amazing. He says, I will go and heal him. I will go and heal him. Without any hesitation, I will do it. Matthew, literally, the way, the way he quotes Jesus here, he says, I myself will go. You need help? I will go. Wait a minute. Our response is, you can't go, Jesus. Well, I mean, did you forget who, who you're speaking with? You're speaking to a Gentile. You see, for, for a Jew to enter a Gentile's home wasn't, as offensive as touching a leper, according to the Jewish tradition. Centurion didn't even ask for Jesus to come in, but you see the heart of Christ. I will go to the outsiders. You need help? I'm here. But, but something striking happens. Look at the centurion's response here. But, verse 8, the centurion said to him, I, I'm not worthy for you to come in. And this captain here, this centurion, he's not reflecting the the Jew and Gentile sentiment here, right? No Roman would ever say something like this to a typical Jew. I am not worthy of you to come in. 
They thought of the Jews the same way Jews thought of Romans, pigs, outsiders, unworthy. No, but this statement here is a true reflection of humility and understanding that this man, this man that centurions falls before has power and worth unlike anybody else. The centurion, like the leper, sees in Jesus what others so often miss, glory, worth, majesty, authority. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come in, but, but, there's this contrast, but all you have to do is just say the word. That's all you need to do. If you're going to heal, you don't have to go anywhere. You can just command and my servant will be healed. And, and don't you just love how he proceeds to explain his reasoning for this great faith? I mean, this man understands the Roman military system. I'll read what D.A. Carson says. He says, all authority belonged to the emperor and was delegated. Therefore, because he was under the emperor's authority, when the centurion spoke, he spoke with the emperor's authority, and so his command was obeyed. A foot soldier who disobeyed would not be defying a mere centurion, but the emperor, Rome itself, with all its imperial majesty and might. Here's a common illustration that we often just face every single day as parents. You know, we sometimes tell our kids, hey, uh, we'll tell the older one, for instance, uh, you know, go tell your sister or go tell your brother to come to the table. It's time to eat, right? Or, or something like, hey, tell her to get off the tablet. The, the, uh, her time is up. Right. And so they go and they deliver that message and nothing happens. And then you tell them, you know, tell them dad said to come to the table because it's time to eat. Or, or tell them mom said to get off the tablet because the time is up. And more often than not, they respond. Why? Because of greater authority. There's weight there. And so this centurion is sensing that there is great authority in Jesus. His authority is God's authority. His word is effective because this man here is sovereign. Wow. Jesus' response here is just sheer wonder. Look at Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Obviously this emphasizes the humanity of Christ He marvels at this man's faith. He marvels at this man's great faith. He says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith. I tell you, he says, I tell you, I haven't found such great faith in Israel. Look, this man would not have been well liked by average Jewish person, but Jesus looks at this man and he says, I like this man. Why? Because there's great faith in this man. And then he says the shockers of all shockers here. who He turns around to people and probably not just to his disciples, but he turns around to the crowds that are following him. And he says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, they will not be welcome. You see, the Jews looked forward to a messianic banquet, something that's recorded, for instance, in Isaiah 25. Look at Isaiah 25, verse 6 and 8. says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all people, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And Jesus here, with his statement, he confirms that there will indeed be a banquet, and descendants of Abraham will be gathered together from all over the world, he says, from the east to the west. And many of them will not be the Jews, but will be the Gentiles. 
the Jews who are referred here to as the sons of the kingdom, someone who inherits by, by heritage. They, they belong to the kingdom because of the blood that flows through them. They will be thrown out and ultimately experience hell. I mean, doesn't this remind you of the end of Sermon on the Mount? The key to entering the kingdom and enjoying the banquet, this dinner with the Lord and many other great saints is not your heritage. It is not your knowledge. It is not your ability or your performance. It is faith. Faith in Christ. Great faith in great Savior. This centurion gets it, and many more like him will get it. Question is, do we get it? Friends, Jesus is willing to offer cleansing and blessing to any who come to him in faith. And so the call here, again, as we will see, is come and trust. Come and submit and rest on Christ. He alone can deal with all of your sins and the effects of sins. Jesus is the sovereign Messiah who's able to heal the outsider. And look at this, the miraculous happens. Jesus says, go, and the servant was healed that very moment. Healing at a distance. No laying of hands, no touching. Jesus is reaching out beyond the borders with physical healing to demonstrate the reach of his kingdom. My kingdom is coming, and this is what it's going to look like. But also notice quickly verses 14 and and 15 here. Jesus now gets to Capernaum, as we read in verse 5, and he enters Peter's home, and he finds Peter's mother-in-law lying there with fever. Now, this passage here, along with 1 Corinthians 9, 5, indicate that Peter was in fact married. And uh, he was originally from Bethsaida, according to the Gospel of John, but, but probably moved to Capernaum in order to be closer with Christ, when Christ moved there. And Jesus sees Peter's mother, and just a really brief account. He sees her, and he touches her. Again, culturally unacceptable. In some Jewish traditions, touching a woman or even a woman's hand like Jesus did here would make you unclean and unholy. Jewish traditions forbade touching persons with many kinds of fevers and they would even list out some of these illnesses. Such was their thinking, it was their practice. Jesus here, however, notice this, this miracle happens without a word. Without a word, simple touch. He touched her, and the immediate reaction is the fever leaves her, and as a proof of the immediacy of the cure, she gets up and she begins to serve him. So, friend, do you see what's going on here? I mean, this is beautiful. Jesus' first three recorded miracles in Matthew are of outcasts and outsiders. Matthew wants us to see that as the sympathetic Messiah, he is willing to cleanse and to restore these outcasts. And as the sovereign Messiah, he heals the outsiders and he says, come on in, welcome in. There's room for all of you. What a, what a Messiah, what a savior. But Matthew wants us also to see a yet a, a larger, a bigger picture behind these episodes here. Consider the conclusion of Matthew's section here, and, and which brings us to the final point, and that is that Jesus is the substitutionary Messiah who had come to atone for sinners. Substitutionary Messiah. Not just sympathetic and sovereign, but substitutionary who came to atone for sinners. Look at this. After three individual encounters here in verse 16, Matthew gives this general summary of what took place for the rest of the day. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed them all. 
healed them all. And his conclusion here in verse 17 is a quote from Isaiah 53:4, which is all about atonement. It's all about atonement. In fact, if you go to Isaiah, we're not going to make that trek today, but Isaiah 52, beginning with verse 13, all the way through 53, is a picture of the servant, the suffering servant, and his death on our behalf. But, but Matthew here, notice, he seems to focus on Christ taking and carrying physical illnesses and physical diseases, not just in terms of suffering in our place for sins. Notice what one commentator said. Matthew sees Jesus here coming from the mountain of Revelation in chapters 5 through 7 and entering into the valley of the shadow where sickness and demonic forces held sway. And Jesus was willing to carry the burden of the pain, ostracism, and defilement of broken humankind, just as he would later bear its sin. Jesus, Jesus knows our pains because he, he carried them literally. He, he, he gets involved in our troubles. He's not distant, working his magic from afar, as, as some people think. No, friends, Jesus here, he is personal. Are you not thankful for such a savior? He's involved, he's intimately involved. But beyond this, friends, for, for Matthew, Jesus' healing miracles, they pointed beyond themselves to the cross. Like I said, this whole reference here to Isaiah 53 is a reference to the atonement. There is something greater here in healing the sick and bringing about the physical restoration, Jesus says, this is what my kingdom looks like. When my kingdom advances, everything will one day be perfect, and I'm just giving you glimpses of this. But the ultimate reality, the ultimate carrying on and taking on our diseases and our infirmities will happen there later at the end of Matthew, Matthew 27. And I want you to turn there as we finish reading and finish our study here. Matthew 27, would you please look at this account of the cross? Matthew 27, verse, begin with verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and, and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is what it's all about. This is where, this is where Matthew is leading his narrative towards. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to atone for sinners. And on the way there, his kingdom the coming of his kingdom and his power and authority is beginning to infect everybody. And it's beginning to affect the outcast and beginning to affect the outsiders. And I was, uh, as I was reading this account and just reflecting on these, on these both events here, and I was thinking, man, could this be the same centurion? Could this be the same guy? I mean, look at this reaction. Like back then he falls and, and he says, I know who you are and I know, but he's hanging out with his crowd, right? He's hanging out with the outsiders. And here again, he, 
perhaps standing here and witnessing, doing what, what, what he does. And look at this response, truly. I knew it, almost. This man is different. This man is the son of God. Friends, go to Jesus with your pains. Go to Christ with your pains. He cares for your pain. He wants to be your support. He wants to be your strength. With the coming of his kingdom, he affects us. He continues to heal, both physically too. In this life, Christ answers prayers and he provides healing, but the ultimate healing will come when the full display of his kingdom will come. Many of you are suffering in this life physically. Trust Christ. His grace is sufficient. But also go to Christ for the ultimate relief of guilty conscience and burden of sin. All you need is just trust. You need to believe this account. Jesus says who he is. This is who he is. I trust and I believe. And if you don't believe, then pray, help my unbelief. Cry out to him in faith and be restored. Trust Christ. He is your only hope. And remember, finally, that Christ, as he displays in chapters 8 and 9, he has full authority over our lives. Full authority. Trust him, believe him. And as we will look at next time, commit to being his disciple. Become part of the community of faith. Follow hard after this Savior. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for just stirring our affections to love him more, to just appreciate, to be reminded that he is who he said he is and to continually cling to him. At one time we had no hope, but now we have hope. We were not your people, but now we are your people. Why? Because your son, Father, brought us into your fold, and we are so thankful for that. Oh, bless those among us who do not have this hope. I pray that you would restore them, help them to see Christ for who he is and treasure him forevermore. Amen.